Bibles to Revelation chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 13 through 21. Revelation 9, verses 13 through 21. Hear now the word of God. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. I thus saw, thus I saw horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, sulfur yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind were not killed by these plagues, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor talk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or thefts. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we read of these devastations, we do pray that, in part, they would fill our hearts with fear, recognizing that our God is a consuming fire. Yet at the same time, Father, we know that your word is designed to comfort your people and to bring us close to you, to take refuge in Christ and his victory, that we might stand in these judgments. So help us to understand the words that we have just read. We do pray that they would bring honor to your name and edification to your people, and conversion to those who have not yet called upon your name. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I was in a conversation with a um, somewhat outspoken, smart, yet unbelieving friend. We were commiserating over the horrible trial that a mutual friend was going through, something that none of us would want to go through. We were both talking about how, how horrible it was. And my friend, not one to miss the opportunity to take a jab at religion, made the comment, how can you believe in God with this type of thing? Well, I wanted to move that conversation away from philosophical. I'm, I'm not against the philosophical conversation. I wanted to move it more into a kind of existential conversation in terms of experience. And my response to that was, how can you not? You understand the distinction there. See, recognizing that we're always in flux. We're always moving one way or another. The trials and tribulations in which we find ourselves can either yield a shaking fist at God. That's one option, I guess. You don't like the lot in life. You don't like what you're going through. So you shake your fist at God. Or the other option is to run to God and seek refuge under the wings of the Almighty. 
Those are two places you can go. And not moving at all to say, well, I'm just going to stay in the middle is just indifference, and it's the same as shaking your fist. It's just doing it in kind of a, a subtle, uh, you know, quiet, what's that term people use when passive-aggressive way, yes. Now, as we're reading the Revelation, we recognize this, and I know I have to review things a lot because it's, you know, it's, it's complicated, and I'm hoping that at the end you very least understand what I'm putting forth in terms of what the Revelation is all about. When this was being written, there was already the Great Tribulation that had begun. John, in chapter 1, verse 9, says, I am a partner with you in the tribulation. So that's already happening. John is already part of what's going on, and it's going to get worse. So we realize things are hot, and they're getting hotter. The churches receiving this letter, there are seven churches receiving this letter, they all needed to know how to respond to that which was about to take place. We all need to know how God calls us to respond to difficulty. These churches were going to be tempted to either follow heretical teachings or they were going to be tempted to follow immorality and they needed to be ministered to. So what what would our Lord do for these churches? How would he somehow minister to them and us as we read it in light of these difficulties that were about to take place? Well, in chapter 1, what we see is the glorified Christ. When we think about the difficulty that we're about to go through, we can't allow our minds to stray from the glory of Christ John calls him the ruler of the kings of the earth. So whatever you're going through, recognize the glory and the power and the wonder of your advocate. And then in chapters 2 and 3, he begins to to teach them about the things that are going to be tempting them to move in the wrong direction. Where Jesus will say, I know your works. I know what's going on. Our Lord, He knows what's going on in our church. And it's the responsibility of myself and the elders and really all of us to continually be observing and evaluating and self-reflecting in terms of the way the world would, would seek to, to pull us in certain directions. Then, after that, in chapter 4, we're brought, as it were, into the throne room where we, where we see God the Creator, where we, where we see the worship of Christ the Redeemer. We begin to see, in, in light of that, that what's kind of going on here is small potatoes compared to what's going on there. There's, like a, there's a heavenly-mindedness that really, that John, but really the Holy Spirit, really Jesus is calling us to as we're about to embark upon these difficulties, particularly the, the intense difficulties that these churches were about to go through. We also read of a seven-sealed scroll. So you have the scroll, and in that scroll we see the uh, the redemptive history that is about to unfold. And it's got seals, and each time a seal is taken off, we see kind of a preview of something that's going to happen to them in the near future. Keeping this in mind, that what the scroll is revealing is that God will judge the apostate people. But while at the same time, protecting his people. 
what we see is the transition here from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant taking place in the Revelation. Well, we have the seven-sealed scroll. Those are opened. Then we start going down that. And then we have seven trumpets of judgment, just to kind of update us. And right now, we're in the sixth trumpet. That's where we are. That's up to date. Verse 13, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So right away, we're reminded yet again of the divine nature of these judgments. You see, if we were there just watching, we would just kind of go, well, that's one nation attacking another nation. There's stuff going on here. But what we learn here is that there is, there is the Lord God, the divine nature, in terms of what's taking place. We see this especially with the reference to the altar. Let us also be reminded that as we look at that altar, that it's the prayers of the saints which becomes the mechanism by which God brings these judgments to pass. It's not normally a comfortable way for us to pray that God would bring evil into judgment. But that's what's going on when, they, when we beckon back and we see those souls praying under the altar. How long, O Lord, until you avenge? How long until you stop this from taking place? These are prayers that God would bring justice. I mean, it made me think this week of Mary in the Magnificat as she is very poetically anticipating as she was pondering the child in her womb. So she's, she's told what she's going to be part of. And that very beautiful, they, they call it the Magnificat, Magnificat, some people call it the song. But at very least, it's a very beautiful poetic expression of her understanding of what would be accomplished by the Messiah. And one portion of that we read in Luke 1, 50 through 52. She says, And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. See, one of the accomplishments of the Messiah would be that he will come and sort things out. That's what she's saying. You know, he's going to bring them down. He's going to bring us up in history. These are things that the Messiah will accomplish. John, through this sixth angel, is about to record a major chapter in this reckoning. You know, I appealed to Mary, but there are so many other places that you can look in the Scriptures recognizing, no doubt, no doubt, and don't get, don't get misled in all of this. Front and center, first and foremost, the Messiah came to die that we might live. We, we never want to stray from that. But there are a lot of other things the Bible says that the Messiah, who is Christ, will accomplish in terms of the course of history. He's not here just to save us and have us just kind of stay in our little church and be saved. He's calling us to be a vehicle for change in the world. That the means by which the mountains are brought down and the lowly are brought up is by people being faithful. 
in everything we do. So we've got to recognize that there is, with the Messiah, the call to a changed world. Now, this altar not only brings our thoughts to the prayers of the saints and the divine force behind these events, but the, the altar, you think about that altar, I mean, we don't have an altar in the New Covenant Church, but the altar was a place where safety could be found. Adonijah, in his fear of Solomon, is, we're told that he grabs the horns of the altar. It's like, this is, in, this is kind of insurmountable. What's coming at me is beyond me, so I'm gonna, this is what I'm going to hold on to, the horns of the altar. I mean, we all know, I, think, I, mean, I think we know what an altar is. An altar is a place of divine sacrifice. It's where you kill the lamb. The horns represent power. But like so many things in Scripture regarding our interactions with God, for example, in a moment, the Lord's Supper, there's nothing tepid about the waters of the living God. They either quench or they drown. I mean, we need to understand that. We are, we are either, as we read this, we are either saved by what takes place, as it were, on the altar, or we are judged by that same altar. Again, there's no indifference to it. it as I read this this week, it made me think, you know, as I, we gather here, right, as the church, it made me think, that we have to be very careful in our efforts to be welcoming and relevant. And I, don't get me wrong, I, I think we should be welcoming and relevant. You know, I, I don't want, you know, I'm not really, a, I don't think seeker-centered is the way a church should be, but I don't think we should be seeker-hostile, you know. We should be, you know, be, for maybe a better term, would be user-friendly. You know, you want people to understand what's going on. You want to engage them. You want to smile. But we also have to be careful that we don't become so casual in our worship that we, that we fail to understand how dangerous it is to come before the living God. The, one of the problems that I see in the contemporary church is that we begin to treat God as if he's a contemporary. and We need to be careful not to go there. I recall uh, my friends, you know, I, I had to register for the draft when we were still in Vietnam. And I remember friends of mine had gone and came back and uh, we'd hang out and talk about it. And I remember them talking about the way it felt to be in such a compromised position. One, one buddy of mine, one of my volleyball partners, who became, later became a cop and stuff, he would talk. He, I remember he told me nine hours in a rice paddy. Just nine hours in a rice paddy. And then I... Then I would ask him about the sound of the helicopters. I go, well, so when you hear those helicopters, it must, must have, you I mean, because you, you didn't just hear them, you would feel them, right? I go, it must have, must have felt pretty good. And he's like, it all depends. It all depends on whose helicopters they are. You know, we weren't the only ones who owned helicopters. And my, my illustration here if you're going to go with my metaphor, is that the uniform, the right uniform, is the seal of God. 
that, that He has put His name upon us, that we belong to Him, to those who believe in Christ, it is granted to stand in the great day of His wrath. The event of Revelation 9, I think, happened in history. I think it happened, for the most part, 2,000 years ago. But I do also think it provides a great lesson on standing in the final judgment. All right, moving on. Out of the four horns, we hear words, verses 14 and 15, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year, were released to kill a third of mankind. Well, I mean, this is, if you go into the Christian bookstores, where you're going to be met with all sorts of extraordinary interpretations. This is where things get wild. Just so you understand kind of what's going on here, we have this image given in the passage. You have four angels being, as it were, were held back, right? They're being held back, not yet released. Maybe think of a, like a thoroughbred horse, right, in the starting gate. They're, they're ready to go, and they're being held back like a finger in a dam, right? They, and, and so this is about to take place, and they have been prepared. I, for some reason, that's put in there. It seemed to me to be kind of out of line with the flow of the passage, the day, the month, the hour, the year, it's all put in there. And I think, though, it's there for a reason, recognizing that this history that we're experiencing isn't random. I think this is appealing to the decree of God, the providence of God, recognizing that no matter what is happening to you, what is happening around us, nothing is happening outside of the divine orchestration of the living God. And I just want to remind all of us that in these times of difficulty, it's not as if God has walked out of the room. I mean, you know, one very popular, high-profile religious figure in America, I think it was after 9-11, they asked, you know, know, where was God during 9-11? And their response was, well, we asked God to leave. And being the gentleman that he is, he left. And then we have done this to ourselves. And a lot of people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is not the way it works. God doesn't leave. He's either there in His grace or He's there in His wrath, one way or another, but He's in the room. We are not the victims of the random happenings of an ungoverned universe. And that should should grant great peace to those who are in Christ. Know this, that in eternity, you will praise God for every single moment of history that He ordained, even the darkest hour of your life. You will praise him for that. And I have to say, that to me is quite comforting. When you're kind of going, when I'm talking with my friend, and he's just, we're like going, wow, that's really rough. Wouldn't want to go through that. But in eternity, we'll recognize the invisible yet divine hand that governs all things. Now, what is the significance here of the great Euphrates, all right? So now we've got this river, 1,700-mile-long river. This is where things get a little wild, just so you understand. If you were to go into a Christian bookstore right now and buy the more popular 
books. This is probably, you know, the conjecture here is that this is red China unleashing its army of 200 million soldiers. They called it the Yellow Peril back in the day. I don't know if they still call it that. If you start reading the books, which I have, which I read, they're mobilizing their ballistic missile launchers. It's said to speak of nuclear war, melted earth, full invasion of the entire Western world, and radioactive fallout, debris, and so forth. And for the life of me, I'm just not finding that in the passage. But people get very excited about that. This is it. Now, less uh, fantastic views by people who I think are a little bit more measured. They say this sixth angel changes men into devils and that John is describing all wars, past, present, and future. Even the very reputable William Hendrickson, who I think is like kind of a rock. I mean, I go to, he's, he's gone to be with the Lord, but I think in terms of theologians and commentators, solid. But even he and he's an all-male idealist. And if you don't know what that means, you have to come to adult Sunday school, <laughs> where we will explain what that means. He's an all-millennial idealist. But he basically, even he says, this chapter speaks of war tools, tanks, cannons, battleships, and so forth. Now, I've said this, and I'll say it. I've said it many times, and I'll continue to say it. I think there is great application and comfort for believers in every age as we read of the unveiling of God's divine hand here in Revelation. We shouldn't read it as merely history, and we shouldn't read it as merely addressing one generation at the end of time. We are reading about how God deals with history and how we are to respond to that and the comfort found in that. What Christian will not take comfort reading chapter 1 and the glory of Christ, that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth, which he was then and he still is today? We should find comfort in that. So similar to other books in the Bible, we read it and we recognize events are taking place and there's an application to our lives here and now. But let me just tell you, and I don't have time to get into the details, there are too many markers in Revelation. I have a whole paper on, you know, um, imminent verses in Revelation. There are too many places in Revelation indicating, number one, that what's going to happen is about to start and that it's a unique historical event. There are too many of those in Revelation to, number one, consign us only to the end of history, or even to spread it out throughout the course of history. There, there's something that they are about to deal with that is cataclysmic. I don't think that's, I think that's unavoidable as you read the passage. Now, what about this Euphrates? Because what does that mean to you or me, Right? I mean, Euphrates? I mean, yeah, I, I guess I'd like to visit the Euphrates, and I think it's still around, right? Euphrates still exists, 1,700 miles of river. It'd be hard to get rid of that. But if I'm, if I'm a first-century Christian, and I'm knowledgeable of the Old Testament, what does the Euphrates mean to me? You see, if we view this not from a newspaper or even from secular history, but from the Old Testament, the Euphrates means a great deal. I'll just read one passage from Genesis 15, 18. It's God making his promise to Abraham. It's really Abram here in terms of the land. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. 
And we see a number of references in this regard in terms of the border of the land that God had promised Israel. So the location, just so we get what's going on here, the location from which these destructive angels will be released marked the northeast border of the promised land. This is the land God promised to his people, that he was going to secure it for his people. It's the boundary, but we can put it this way. Euphrates was the boundary between God's covenant people in the Old Testament and their enemies. It was also the boundary between the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire as well. So you've got this big boundary here. But, and I know this is, I know I feel like it's a seminary class, but please kind of understand what's going on here. Instead now of the Euphrates providing the secure northern border of the promised land, as we read in Isaiah 8, 5 through 8, it would turn and become a flood on the very people that it was designed to protect. Once again, we see this reversal of fortune. We've talked about this a great deal, right? Israel is now Jericho. Israel is now Sodom. Israel now, instead of being protected by the Euphrates, is going to be overwhelmed by the Euphrates. So everything that was designed to protect God's covenant people has now turned on God's covenant people because God's covenant people have turned their back on God himself. But if one is inclined to search history, and this is secondary, I think it's remarkable that Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, tells us that four legions of Roman armies awaited the green light to invade Jerusalem, as foretold by Jesus, and destroy the temple, and they waited for their orders to invade Israel, stationed at the Euphrates. So, I mean, if you're looking to insert something in here that makes sense, that seems to make a lot of sense to me. Now, some of you are going to look at this and go, wait a minute, Pastor Paul, during Q&A, you're going to go, wait, I got some problems with what you're saying. Because you're talking about a local judgment here, at least it's, it's Jerusalem, it's, it's Israel. Well, here's a couple of things you need to know. Oftentimes, when you're reading your Bible, the word world will refer to Rome. When the Apostle Paul told the Roman church that your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world, he wasn't talking about Alaska or South America. He was talking about all throughout Rome. When we read, you know, that the whole world are following these guys, you know, the, the, the disciples, the apostles, the whole world wasn't following them. It was just a lot of people. So you'll look at this and go, wait a minute, Pastor Paul, you're saying this is a more local judgment, but it says here that a third of mankind are killed. Well, a couple things real quick. First of all, as we'd indicated earlier, if it's a judgment of the world, it's not going to be a third. It's going to be all. Secondly, in Deuteronomy 21, we see this idea of a third being related to the inheritance laws in Israel. But if we wanted to translate this, if you have some of you, I know you come to this church with your Greek New Testaments and good for you. (laughs) The rest of you should feel comfortable that there are people in the room with their Greek New Testaments kind of going, oh, hang on. But the strict translation 
as Jung's literal translation indicates, is a third of men, or not a third of mankind, but a third of the men. Just so you understand. Go home and do your study if you don't have your own Greek New Testament handy. Moving on, verses 16 through 19. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. I, and thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, sulfur yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind, same, a third of the men, just so you know, was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. Again, a great deal is written on these four verses regarding thermonuclear devastations, along with 200 million soldiers, the yellow peril coming out of China, 200 million soldiers, which apparently China had reached in 1961. And one of the books I was reading was written in the mid-70s. And they're like, oh, in 1961, they had 200 million. Who knows how many they have now, you know? So it was, and everybody, you know, prophecy conferences and big meetings, and everybody's getting all nervous about it. And it is fascinating, right? I mean, you write books about it, you make movies about it. I mean, it's the kind of, my view on this, no movies. I got, it's just, there's no screenplay that I got going here. But let me tell you, what we are, what this is actually talking about is way more significant than what's talked about in those books and movies. Because what we have here is the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. It's God saying, look it, I've always determined that my covenant would be international. I'm ending the Old Covenant, and I'm giving this kingdom to a nation bearing the fruits thereof, that is the church, and I'm going to remove its detractors right in the very beginning, and I will protect my church throughout the course of history. I have to say, for me, for my money, that's more important. That God has made a promise, that he, and he's keeping his promise. That the Great Commission will be fulfilled. Well, keep in mind, at the time that this was written, the whole world lay under the sway of the wicked one. I don't, th- I don't think you can say that today. I think a great deal of the world lays under the sway of the Holy Spirit. And I think throughout the course of history, with its ups and downs, we're going to see that happening more and more and more. And make no mistake, it's a battle. It's not something that happens immediately, automatically. But that is the promise, that the kingdom of God will extend. If we read, and I don't, again, I don't have time to get into that, but if we read in Isaiah of the expansion of the kingdom, it expands intensively and extensively. It gets stronger and bigger and stronger and bigger, again, with ups and downs and ups and downs, but that is the promise. And right here in Revelation, we see God keeping the promise that those forces that seemed insurmountable will, in fact, be taken down. Well, the new covenant would begin, and the church's detractors moved aside that the mustard seed might sprout and become larger 
than all the garden plants. I mean, I think, you know, we say, we look at that and we kind of blow by it. Oh, it's going to be the biggest. It's going to be the biggest. It's going to be bigger than all the garden plants. You might go, well, Pastor Paul, what are, all, what are the garden plants? Everything. It's, it's, it'll be the tour de force of righteousness throughout the course of history. Now, again, anticipating Q&A, one might point out that at the time of the writing of the Revelation, there may not have been 200 million people, you know, give or take, on the entire planet. So you would say, oh, hold on, Pastor Paul. Um, Don't get liberal on me. How could this not... How could this be fulfilled then, when in 1961, China has 200 million? You've got to be careful with what we call wooden literalism. All of a sudden, we're going to go, well, you've got to take that 200 million literally. Well, that, I appreciate literal when literal. But the Revelation is a very symbolic book where we're instructed through signs. Are there literal things in there? I think there are some. 200 million? Well, let me say that David, who predates the writing of Revelation by a thousand years, meaning that there were fewer people on the planet during the time of David than during the time of John, right? So you understand what I'm saying here, right? You're going, well, no, it's got to be 200 million. They didn't have 200 million then. But David who wrote the Psalms, a thousand years before, approximately, wrote this. Psalm 68, 17. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Twice ten thousand thousands. Anybody care to do the math on that? Because I think we're right around 200 million. And then he adds thousands. Well, what David is doing here, and I think John is appealing to David, what David is doing here is he is celebrating his victory over his enemies. That's what that psalm is about. David is offering a display of God's divine power in those victories. Once again, we see apostate Israel on the receiving end of that which once defended them. David is like, you know, the Lord is for us. He's got 200 million chariots. Nobody can beat us. And now that is turned on them. Once again, you're either the object of God's divine love and grace and mercy or his wrath. I just want to say, I kidded a minute ago about being liberal, but As I read this, I have to say, let the modern liberal church beware. We we live in an era where where the person and work of Christ has become expendable within the church. And that these types of passages should bring a healthy fear. And I, I mean we're talking about these elders watching over me and what I teach. You elected elected them, right? Their job is to watch over me. And we've got to make sure that we stay on target, word and sacrament, the person and work of Christ. Christ and him crucified. 
We, we go off the rails and we become a church of social justice or whatever direction you want to take. Those elders need to take me to task. And if they don't, you need to take them to task. Because there's a great danger that the church will no longer be the church. The lampstand is removed. Why is the lampstand removed? And I think it's interesting that it's not the light that's removed, it's the lampstand that's removed. And it makes me think, and this is not biblical, but I'm going to say it anyways, just so you know, just to get the image, right? It makes me think that there is a lamp in the lampstand, right? Now, the lamp is Christ, and the lampstand is removed. And then, again, I'm just kind of shooting from the hip a little bit here. But then that falls, that lamp falls upon the church and sets it on fire. It's not as if Jesus just leaves. The lampstand might, might be removed, but Jesus is staying. But he's staying in judgment. Now, a lot can be said about these horses and their riders. right? So you're looking at this going, oh, wait a minute. These, these do seem like cobra helicopters and tanks and battleships and, and what have you. And uh, nerve gas. But let's just take a second. Again, I don't want to overly prove this. I was um, listening. I had Presbytery uh, Friday. was two and a half hours away, and I was driving, listening to lectures. And one of the ones I really enjoyed, and it was a pastor, and um, he was just going, look at you. um, You don't, it's not your job to just believe what your pastor says. It's your job to see if what your pastor is saying is biblical. And once you see that it's biblical, then you sink your teeth into it and you don't let go. And so I don't want you to just believe me because, you know, somehow I'm persuasive. I, I, my, my desire is for you to see this yourself. All right? I'm saying that in light of these horses, right? So you're going, wait a minute, Pastor Paul. These horses don't seem like ordinary horses to me. And their riders don't seem like ordinary riders. But again, if we are reading the Revelation in light of the Old Testament rather than in light of, you know, intelligence reports out of the 70s, we're going to see what these things actually mean when we read our Bibles. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. Speaking of the Chaldeans, which were a nation of people who were at war with Israel, rising up to punish, God's rising up the Chaldeans to punish at this point the sins of Israel. This is what we read in Habakkuk 1.8. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. By the way, at the end of chapter 8, we have this eagle, right? This angel eagle circling but they're like leopards. Looking at 1 Chronicles 12.8 in reference to the Gadite warriors who were going to aid David, we read this. From the Gadites there went over to David at the stronghold in the wilderness mighty and experienced warriors, expert with shield and spear. So far, literal, right? I think they were literal Gadites. I think they were really good with the shield and the spear. Let's read on. Whose faces were like the faces of lions. I don't think he's saying these guys were really ugly. <laughs> what, what, what's he saying? They're, they're what? They're, they're fierce. 
and were as swift as gazelles upon the mountains. So we, when we look at the Old Testament and we see the idea of horses and horsemen being like lions and fierce and what have you, the Bible tells us how we are to understand that type of terminology. Now, again, I do think if we dig into it, these types of things do have some kind of, kind of deeper spiritual meaning that we can dig out. I mean, we, we read in Isaiah 9.15 that the tail is, is one that utter lies, a serpent is one that utter lies, and so forth. I think we can conclude from these images when we start talking this way, and I'm going to take a little turn here. Hopefully you understand so far. That these devastations were, I said a minute ago that they're divine. They're not just what's happening here. But I also don't think it's just merely physical. I don't think, what we have, I don't think we should read this in such a way as to go, in Israel, they had a land of truth. Everybody was happy. Everybody was righteous. Everybody was good. They were good people. And this evil was an uninvited interloper. That is not what was happening then. This that was happening to them are the consequences, and this is where I think it really does apply all throughout history and especially to us right now. These are the consequences, the results of being under a false god. This is what happens. There is a madness. There is a dark madness that ensues. Many of you are familiar with the story in 1 Samuel where Israel wanted to be like other nations, right? They wanted a king like other nations, which was a, which was a rebellion. And here's, here's God's response to that in 1 Samuel 8, 6 through 9. And as I read this, I was very tempted to just kind of keep talking more about it, but I'm, very, I'm already on far into it. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, and that is in picking a king. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. All right, so he's going, they want a king? Give them a king. But before you do that, let them know what that king is going to be like. And that's where I was tempted to continue reading because the king that shall reign over you, and whether you know it or not, you have one, is going to necessarily be inferior to the loving, merciful gracious God who sent his son to die for sinners. Whoever that king is, he's not going to match up to that king. In verses 10 through 18, here's what happens. Samuel begins to explain the self-serving nature of a massive government. That, that here's what he's going to want. He's going to want your kids. They're going to want to run your businesses. They're going to want, and they, but he starts to, explaining some of the current administrations that have been in Washington, D.C. 
Just trust us. We're in charge. We'll take care of you. We just need more of your money. We just need your kids. We'll educate them. We'll take care of them. When you start reading that passage, it's like he's explaining exactly what any big giant government wants, and that's you. Period. You're here to serve us. This brought my thoughts to another buddy of mine, another unbelieving friend. And we were all sitting at the dinner table. I actually had done the funeral of his daughter. Really sweet guy. And a new president had just been elected. I won't get into who the president was. He and I were not of the same political persuasion. I'll just say that. And he was talking to his son. And he made this statement. And I'm going to tell you, I don't care what political persuasion you are. What the statement he made, I found to be haunting. And he said, don't worry, son. He's going to take care of us. I wouldn't say that about any president. I'm not looking for, I don't care who the president is. We aren't looking to the federal government to take care of us. Leave, for the most part, right, what did, what did it wasn't Reagan, but it was, it was Reagan who said this. What is it, the uh, nine most dangerous words? Is it ten? I'm from the government and I'm here to help. It is the nature and I, again, I'm not saying that in such a way as for us to be bad citizens. I'm just saying that in such a way as to not allow the government to become what they shouldn't be. Now, let's go back a little bit here. The same author who wrote the Revelation, John, recorded this when the covenant people of God were asked by Pilate, shall I crucify your king? All right, now bring this. The chief priests answered. These are the priests. We have no king but Caesar. I want to tell you right now, I mean, you can ask me again during Q&A, what I think we see here is the mark of the beast deeply tattooed upon their hearts. All this to say, going back to the madness, is that one of the judgments of those who choose to be ruled by the sinful creature rather than the loving, wise, holy, sacrificial creator, I think is recorded in Deuteronomy 28.34, where he writes, So shall you be driven mad because of the sight which your eyes see. There's a madness I've offered this many times that even though the the events recorded in the Revelation are largely depicting the, the fall of Jerusalem and the transition from the Old to New Testament. It's not as if there are no lessons for us. Friends, you need to understand that the fruit of rejecting God is a darkened madness. You might, you might think, Pastor Paul, I mean, you're, is, that, is that overly dramatic? A darkened madness, Really? The Apostle Paul, I think, taught as much, asserting that those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, they know God and they choose to press it down. And he says that their foolish hearts are darkened, they're futile in their thinking, and their hearts are dark. I have to say, I I mean, I don't know if it's just me. Do we not all marvel at the folly by which we're surrounded? I don't, I'm scratching my head. The mindless, high-profile personality figures with gigantic platforms and monstrous influence are ruling at this moment. I'm li- I'll be listening to somebody, and I'm thinking, who are you? 
Like, why do you have this show? What, what's, your deg- what's your degree in? I know you were in a movie. What, I don't understand why you have such influence in the world in which we live. And, it's, and some of it's just, I told you a minute ago when I was driving down to Presbytery, I, was, I listened to a number of lectures, and one guy in particular, who I listened to, and I have to say, it was, it was so refreshing hearing somebody who knew what they were talking about. He had done his homework, he knew the history, he knew the language, he, like he knew the environment, and I'm just listening, and I'm like, I could listen to this guy all day long. And it wasn't as if he was all that exciting, he was kind of monotone, but it was, there was something about listening to somebody who's not mad, who's not crazy, who's not full of folly. And we're surrounded by that, and I think that is the consequence of a people who've decided, look it, I want another king. We're, I don't want to be one nation under God. I want to be one nation under whatever. And I really think that we are not encouraging people to think that through. Most people don't know why they believe what they believe. Most people don't know how they know the things they know. I was watching uh, this little episode. It was one of these, you know, Council of Luminaries talking about whether, you know, I don't want to get all overly political here, but it's whatever. <laughs> this is not even really political, I guess. They're talking about are men men and are women women. And there was one guy in the room who's like, I, I felt like he was feeling the way I felt. He's like, what are you guys talking about? Men are men and women are women. And the entire room very hesitatingly tolerated him. Like, the, the people who were the nicest were like, well, hey, I'm not agreeing with that. But, And one person threatened to send him home in an ambulance, one of the more tolerant people literally said, if you keep saying that, you're going to go home in an ambulance. And all he's saying is, I think men are men and women are women. And I bet you it had 25 million views. That's the world that we're living in. It's, it's madness. And I'm going to argue this, though, that when John was writing this, it was worse then than it is today. I mean, we could talk all about how bad it is today, but I think first century Rome was horrible. And not only that, the religion was horrible, as we've pointed out. All right, let me wrap this up. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works, of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. You see what we have here, and this is one of the reasons I opened the way I opened, is here we have a people who, instead of running to the arms of Christ in the midst of all this turmoil, just choose to shake their fist. These are people who knew of Christ. And all this is happening, and they're going, I will not turn to Christ. I I will go where I want to go. Now, we might think, you know, when we look at that, we might think we're above the worship of demons. But at the same time, I wonder how many people engage in it in ignorance. I think history is littered with people who either intentionally or unwittingly worship darkness. I I don't know that you would even know it. But again, it made me think, 
I, re- I, I thought of this psalm when I thought to myself, how easily we just terminate our babies. I mean, there is a, there is a special kind of darkness there. There is a special, intense, abject kind of evil there. And it made me think of Psalm 106, 36, and 37. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. And again, to what extent they're like doing demon worship and intentionally do this, I don't know. But I do know that the, that the, the devils and his followers, they love death. They love to kill. And all the more to kill that which is innocent as a plague of their darkness. And we might all look at ourselves and we self-evaluate. I know we, you know, we live in a culture where we're like, those people, were, you know, they, they were backwards back then. And I would never venerate, revere, or seek to emulate an idol. Paul, I don't have an idol. This, you know, which can never, we read, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. We see that also in Daniel. But I think he's referencing Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. So let's just read that whole psalm. Not the whole psalm, just 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. But verse 8 is what I wanted us to dial in on. Those who make them will become like them. So do all who trust in them. Well, like I said earlier, I feel like we live in a time and in a land where people don't know why they know the things they know. They, they don't understand why they think certain things are right and certain things are wrong. All you have to do is get in a conversation with a person willing to have a conversation and do what you call an infinite regress. I think it's wrong to do that. Well, why do you think it's wrong? Well, it's wrong because of this. Well, like, what, you know, I remember having a conversation, my wife and I, I don't, you know, I think their comment was, I don't like organized religion. I'm like, I don't like it either that much. Like, why do you not like it? Well, you know, I think it's probably the way I raised, my parents raised me. I'm like, were your parents always right? No, sometimes they're wrong. So how do you determine whether your parents are right or wrong? Probably the culture in which I live. There's a culture in which you live. Are they, is it always right? No. Okay, so how do you determine whether your culture is right or wrong? You understand the infinite regress here? And what you find is the feet, as my friend Greg Coco likes to say, people have their feet firmly planted in thin air. They don't know why at all. And they're not encouraged to think that way. They're not encouraged. Here's a big term for you. You can throw it around if you're losing an argument and you want to just sound smarter than you really are. They are not epistemologically self-conscious. Epistemology is the theory of knowledge. They don't know why they know what they know. But this is a problem. In Isaiah 1.3, we see it said this way. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. They know who owns them. They know where they live. They know where they belong. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. These are the people of God. They should know who their master is, and they have chosen not to. Well, what's our current idol? I would say right at the top of the list is naturalistic Darwinianism and our understanding of human nature. I think that turn into atheistic Marxism, which was the experiment of the 20th century. We don't need God, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, atheistic Marxism. There is no God. We all evolved. We're all just animals at some higher level. I don't know. Maybe we're not the highest level. Maybe, 
you know, the dolphin are higher than us and so forth. The, the natural result of that, when you remove God and say that we've just kind of evolved, is that God is now removed in terms of primary, and something takes, it, it takes its place. You know what took its place in the 20th century? Government. When God goes out, government comes in. And that is the failed bloody experiment of the 20th century. Well, that's what we're dealing with. I mean, I, was a t- I taught high school for so many years. And, um, you know, we're always trying to instill this sense of self-value, right, in the kids. The self-worth. Give them an identity. I remember we had a, an assembly where we gave awards out to every kid in the school. And the only thing it produced was a litter problem. Because they all knew, you guys, you know, you, what you've done is you've told me I'm not fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm not made in the image of God. I'm just kind of the highest animal. And then you're trying to tell me that I'm valuable or worth something by giving me a piece of paper saying you're the best when I'm getting C minuses in school. And I know I'm not the best. We've extracted that. That's the world in which we live. I couldn't help but think of the words of J. Sidlow Baxter along these lines. He said, those who believe we evolved from the primordial slime have plotted a destination for themselves and those who follow to re-evolve back into the slime from whence they believe they came. I was there when he said this. I was at the church. And everybody started laughing because it's, part of it, it's kind of funny. But he, he chastised that congregation. He's like, you should be crying. You should be weeping. We are to know that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The fifth chapter of Revelation highlights the God who made us, the sixth chapter, the Christ who redeems us. And as the bride of Christ, I want to close with a brief meditation upon the words of Isaiah in 54.5, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would never lose sight of who made us, who bought us, and who owns us. Help us, Father, to receive the admonition we saw so many times in this very letter to persevere, to overcome, to stay, Father, faithful, to finish the race. We pray for our own church, Father, that we would ever seek to proclaim the light who is Christ, recognizing this all begins when you take our hearts and turn them from stone to flesh and open our blind eyes to see the truth of the victory that is found in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.